All right, weekly text based Tanya. We are still in chapter 42. This is third or fourth, fifth. How many classes have we been doing, chapter 42? You're going to be very quiet? Okay. Last week, we only covered a few lines, which is okay. That's, that happens sometimes. Um, if we can cover a little bit more this week than we covered last week, we should finish the chapter, God willing. So we're in the middle of speaking about last week when we left off, sort of uh, closing the loop on the, where the chapter began. The chapter began with that question on the, the Gemara that says, uh, is uh, Yira Milsa Zatarte, is uh, Yira, awe of Hashem, really a trivial matter? Is it no big, no big deal? No biggie. And the Gemara says, yeah, in Lagabi Meisha, yeah, for Meisha Rabbeinu, it's not a problem. It's a, no big deal. We said, fine, that's for Meisha, but what about us? So um, he, uh, he explained at the beginning of the chapter already that Meisha is your internal Meisha, which is Das. And then what we said last week was what happens is you're going to meditate on subjects that bring to the awe of God, the grandeur of God. You're going to meditate on the grandeur of God, the, both how Hashem is beyond, 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 and at the same time, He's focused in on us. And it's going to in, incite a certain feeling of awe. And that, that, that the, the takeaway from that will be at least <clears throat> as effective as the feelings we have of inhibition in social settings where we don't want to embarrass ourselves in front of other human beings. So the takeaway from the awe is not just to feel awe. The takeaway from the awe is how it will guide our behaviors in Sumerava Seitoif. Go away from evil and do good. Okay. So that's so that's where we left off. So for Moshe Rabbeinu, which is the das within each godly soul, it's not a big deal to have Yira. It's very attainable to have Yira of Hashem. And what kind of Yira? Enough to get you to behave. All right. Now, because obviously when it comes to emotions, there are limitless gradations. So have you felt awe? Yeah, okay, how much awe? There's limitless amounts of awe you can feel. So we're quantifying, we're saying enough, I don't know if we're quantifying or qualifying, I'm not sure if this is quantity or quality, but the point is it's the kind of awe or the right amount of awe to translate into controlling your behaviors. Okay. Then he proceeds to explain in the brackets, Shahadas hu hamakasha mitzvune binas halev el bechinas gilui b'machshova mamish kiyadu aliyedechein. Das is that which connects from the recesses of the heart to the revelation of the thought, as is known to those who are acquainted with Kabbalah. <laughs> He's describing Das here. We describe Das in many different ways. Its functionality is always some, somewhat of a bridge. But here he describes it sometimes as a bridge between Chachma and Bina, sometimes it's a bridge between the, 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 the Seichel and the Middais. 
I'm not going to unpack all this right now. I'm just going to keep floating. I want to move. Wanna... Here he describes Das as a bridge between the recesses of the heart and the revelations of the mind, of the thought. Right? The recesses of the heart could be like emotions that you have buried so deep you're not even aware that you have them. The revelations of the mind means conscious thought. Like, you know that you're thinking it. Not subconscious thought. Conscious thought. In fact, willful thought. Purposeful thought. So Das, we're describing here as the bridge between deep emotions that are so deep, maybe you don't even know that you have them. And That's on one side. And then the other side is conscious, willful thought. We go in and you say, here's what I'm thinking about. And I know I'm thinking about it because I chose to think about it. Das is what's bringing that out. So, you have these feelings of awe somewhere buried deep in your heart. Remember, we spoke about the buried treasure. And we're going to bring it out to a conscious subject to ponder and meditate upon. Okay. Okay. Now, another important thing to remember, when you are th- thinking about these meditations, particularly the awe-inducing meditations, remember this, that when you have a king, fleshly king, <laughs> the main awe that one fears, feels, fears, is from his pneumius and his chayus, and not from his body. What does it mean? Are you afraid of the king's body, or are you afraid of what the king represents? He explains, When the king's asleep, you're not afraid of him. It's an interesting thing. When the king sleeps. A metaphorical king is just a metaphorical king. Think about it. If there is an electric fence, so what are you afraid of? You're afraid of touching the fence. So as long as the fence is there, it's scary. Or let's say walking on the edge of a, of a body of water. So you got to be careful not to fall in the water. So you're afraid of the ledge. Or let's say it's a fire. You don't want to touch the fire, so you're afraid of the fire. (laughs) The fence, the ledge, the fire, these are things that are physical threats. So you just stay away from them physically and you're okay. And if they're physically present, then you got to be careful. Right? So far, so good. It's not a deep concept. It's not mind-twisty. It's not, this is a very simple idea, right? Okay. The king, however, is a little different. <coughs> now, I know you're going to say, well, I'm afraid I'm going to wake up the king. You're not going to wake him up. He's, he's totally asleep. The king, you're not afraid of the king's body. Like, oh, no, be careful. Don't get too close to the king's body. Like, it's the third rail or something at the subway. You're afraid of what the king represents and what he can do. Meaning, it's not his physical body that you're afraid of. 
like you're afraid to touch the fire or go, or go close to the ledge or touch the electric fence. It's the life force within the king that manifests through the king's body and yeah, he can give orders that can be life or death orders, but it's not his physical body. It's not, he's not an object that you fear. It's, you're, you're, you're in awe of what his, his function is, what he's capable of doing. Yes, does everyone understand this? It's not a deep concept. It's really, by the way, I have a general helpful hint for learning. If something is phrased as a metaphor, then by definition, it's really accessible and it's not deep. Because the whole purpose of a metaphor is to present an accessible idea that will lead you to understanding a deeper, more abstract idea. So the metaphor is not deep and abstract. The metaphor is very simple. So I know you're in Tanya mode and you might be thinking too deeply. Don't overthink this. It's just a simple thing. There are, there are sources of fear where it's the actual physical object that I'm afraid of. And then there is, it's not the physical object, like in the case of the king. It's not his physical body. Oh, no, I don't want to touch his body. It's the life that pulses through the king when he's awake and can be expressed and manifest as various life-changing decrees that he can issue. You understand? Okay, fine. Awesome. You're going to say, well, what's the point of this metaphor? We didn't say yet. We didn't say yet. You didn't miss anything. You're right where you should be. Okay. Now, the king's pinimius and his chayus, he calls it his inner life. You don't see it with your physical eyes. You see it with your mind's eye. But it's visually cued by seeing the physical side of the king, and then you know in your mind that within the physical body of the king is housed the king's life force. Now it's getting a little bit more complex, but still it's not a super complex idea. You're not afraid of the king's body. It's not like a fire where you're afraid to touch the fire. For good reason, you're afraid to touch the fire. It's not, oh, I'm afraid to touch the king's body. If I touch his body, I'll blow up. Okay? However, when you see the king's body, that's a visual cue to remind you of the king's life force. That means his, his powers, his... His capacities, what? His authority, yeah, which is an abstract notion. The authority of the king. It's not a thing, it's an idea. Right, right. Or you're not afraid of his body either way, but if he wasn't a king, then seeing his body wouldn't remind you of his authority because he would have none. So you see his body, and it's a visual cue. Oh, this is the king. Now, he's not the king because of his body, but the body is a cue to your visual senses to remember in your mind what the king represents. I like that word, his, his authority. Yeah, okay. So far, so good? We're doing okay? All right, fine. Oh. Vim Cain, if so. All right, now we're going to get the application. 
If so, this is exactly how you should fear Hashem. When your physical eyes look at the heavens and the earth and all of the stuff in them, that the infinite light is invested within all of the entities of the heavens and the earth. In other words, when you look up at the sky and you see all the constellations and you're like, wow, this is crazy, this is so mind-blowing, this is so awe-inducing, I can't believe it. Okay, sure, sure, no problem. But that's just a visual cue to your physical senses to remind you of an abstract concept that you can only appreciate in your mind. Meaning you're not afraid of the vastness of the universe. The vastness of the universe, if indeed that's our visual cue, is a reminder of what the king, meaning with a capital K, what Hashem represents. Just like with the king, it's not his body you're afraid of, it's what the physical presence of the king reminds you of, ah, the, what the king represents. So when you do this meditation, we're saying it is, it begins at least with a visualization, but the visualization, and it could be an imagination visualization, an imaginary visualization, or it could be literally, I don't know, go fly out to Arizona and go out uh, where you can actually see some stars. What? To Sedona. Go to Sedona. We should have a class trip to Sedona. And we should go out and go and meditate on the vastness. We're going to go out and see uncountable amounts of stars. And then we're going to see, remember though, don't, you're not blown away by the fact that the, that the universe is so big. That's just the king's body. And it's to remind you of the chayas, the, the, the life force of the king, which is invested within those things. Yeah, what were we going to say? You sure? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You hear thunder. You make a bracha shakaych gvorosim haloyelam. Yeah. Yeah. I just last week I had an occasion to apply a, a halacha that I had learned in the chart in the back of the siddur, where they tell they tell you where you can be mafsik, different interruptions at different places of davening. So, I think I remember once. Oh no! I know where I did it. A f- couple months ago, I was on sh- on a Shabbaton in uh, Tampa, in Tampa. Oh. Where? Turn that was a different Shabbaton. No, I don't know what that is. Florida. For Rosh Hashanah, you're going ahead. Oh, that's where. Okay, we'll talk about that in one second. <laughs> I was in Tampa. I don't think it was Shavuos, but it was like maybe close to Shavuos, and we were in a hotel, and I could see the bay. And I got to make a shakaycha gvorosim elam and also the thunder bracha and the lightning bracha in the middle of davening. And I knew, or maybe I had to look up, but yeah. And then that you're allowed to do it while you're in the middle of psukkah dezimra. So if you want to know, if you're in the middle of psukkah dezimra, you can make those brachas. Okay. Okay. The thunder and the lightning over the bay. Okay. And then earlier last week, a few days ago, it happened again. I was in Florida again, not in Tampa. In, I was in Miami area. 
and I made a shkoichah gvorosam aleilam. I should say it in the right order. First, you make lesimais voracious because light travels faster than sound, and then shkoichah gvorosam aleilam on the thunder. In the middle of pesukah de zimra, because it is pesukah de zimra, they are praises of Hashem. What's Turnberry? That's where your glasses broke. My glasses broke in Inverie. Oh, okay. That's, okay. I don't know what Turnberry is. I remember. Now, what did you want to say about Rosh Hashanah? I, no, I thought maybe she was talking about where the Rosh Hashanah program is. Where is the Rosh Hashanah program? Somewhere in Florida. It is in Florida, yes. Does anyone know? I have I. I'll look it up. Did, did you finally subscribe to my WhatsApp? I still don't get it. You need to. Why don't you get it? I don't know. I get the soul word status, but I don't get messages. You don't get broadcasts? Did you send a message to the text? I did. What do you write? Subscribe? Write right again. Please subscribe again. Say, I'm not getting the broadcast. Oh, awesome. You're coming with me for Rosh Hashanah? That would be great. That would be amazing. Okay, so text the soul words. But text again and say, please send me the... I'm not getting... Just send a text right now. And because we're recording, what's the phone number for the Soul Words WhatsApp? Okay. 516-495-3021. Okay. So just send subscribe to that number. And can you just write to them again? Please, I'm not getting the broadcast. Please look into it. Tell, tell them, like you can do a voice note even and say, I haven't been getting the broadcast. I, I can see the statuses, but I'm not getting the broadcast. Okay. What does the Soul Words WhatsApp send? What does the Soul Words WhatsApp send? It sends different clips of me talking. Yeah, that's what it is. But you, yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, okay. Um, so where am I for Rosh Hashanah, God willing? Palm Beach Garden. Palm Beach Garden? Looks like she's going too. Okay, Baruch Palm Beach Garden at the PGA Hotel. Yes, oh, with yeah. Rabbi Simon Jacobson, Chazan Yassi, oh, nice. Baumgarten, Bardic nice. Minion. Okay, we have a full Chazan from Paris, program. Please. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, from Paris. Amazing. Okay, so we're inviting everyone to join me for Rosh Hashanah. Rabbi, you know how like some people go on a trip and they write it off as like a business? Yes. Event? We're going to write it off as a mitzvah. Okay. We have to go and meditate over Hashem's yes. world. Maybe we'll do a meditation session on Rosh Hashanah. Oh, that's I like that's You're supposed to meditate anyways during the Tekiah Shaifa. Okay. That's a great idea. Yeah. Oh, we can do a Tashlik meditation. We can do all types of meditations. Okay. All right. I'm going to start working on it. So listen to this. You look at the stars. You go to Sedona and you look at the stars. It's not that you're afraid of the stars. It's that you're in awe of the king who invests himself within these visual cues, these reminders to your five senses. Also, you see that the celestial bodies are subservient to the king and that they bow to him in their rotation um, to the west 
when they sat, like the sages say, and to you all the heavenly hosts bow down, that the Shekhinah is in the west. The uh, celestial sphere is set in the west, and they uh, are bowing to Hashem. That is their form of subjugation to Hashem. So that's pretty cool. So it comes out that their rotation westward is a type of bowing and a type of expression of subservience. And in case any heliocentrists are listening, you can leave vitriolic comments in the YouTube. That's okay. I'm fully aware of the heliocentric model. I think it's a good model. I'm glad that NASA used it for the moon launch. It's fine. It's just a model. Don't get all enamored with it to the point where you're ready to die on that hill. It's just, I'm speaking to the YouTube people. I don't think any of the heliocentrists here even care. You don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. Well, you see, there was this guy named Ptolemy who was a... Yeah. Oh, this is where it's like, it's like Gemara. You know, we start and then. Yeah. Okay. Very simple. <laughs> the, the Torah model for astronomy, which is a very precise model to the extent where I challenge anyone who thinks that they're smart to go learn the Rabbim's Hilchas Kiddush Achidish in Mishnah Torah and tell me you can follow it all. Okay. And just have a little respect for the fact that for millennia, the Jewish sages were able to predict the exact appearance and place of the new moon. And you're going to say, well, the Greeks could do that too. And the Jews got it from the Greeks. Okay, I'm not claiming it's a unique science. Anyone who has the sky up above them can learn how to do this. Right? Okay. In fact, some of the science was lost to the Jewish people. And yeah, the Rambam says we recovered some of it from Aristotle. That's okay. That's why I'm not making any claims that it's a unique uh, science that only the Jews have or had. What I'm saying is that when we say that the celestial bodies are rotating around the earth, and you're going to say, well, that's barbaric. That's barbaric. Okay, well, no, it's not barbaric. Why? Don't you know that Galileo came and he set the Catholic Church straight that the sun is the center of the solar system and the earth goes around the sun? Well, I don't believe that. I believe that the sun goes around the earth, so I'm a barbarian. Well, okay, maybe not barbaric like a violent barbarian. Yeah. More like, uh, maybe they would call it uh, ignorant, maybe they would call it backward. So I'm fully aware of the heliocentric <laughs> model, and it's, and it's a model, and models are as good as the effectiveness of those models. So yeah, I understand that, that for certain calculations, it's much more simple to use a heliocentric model. No problem. I wouldn't go to NASA and try to get them to adjust to a geocentric model. I'm fine with that. But when we're discussing 
theology, then the geocentric model is a more elegant, helpful, instructive model. Okay, and if everything's moving, I think one would be hard-pressed to prove what's stationary and what's in motion and what's moving around what. That's all I'm saying, okay? So, <clears throat> from the perspective of the geocentric model, which is the, the theologically more helpful model, the celestial bodies are moving westward in an act of bowing before the king. And when we see them bow like this, it instills all within us, as he about, he's about to explain further. Imagine someone who never saw the king in his life. He wouldn't even recognize the king if he saw him. This is before TV. The person might not even know what the head of state of his country looks like. However, let's say he came into the king's court. And he saw many great officers bowing before one person. So he doesn't know, oh, that's the king. Look, kids. That's the king. He doesn't recognize the king, but he sees one guy sitting there and a bunch of other classy-looking guys bowing down to that one guy. So what is he going to conclude? Tipil olav emovafachad, he will be beset with a feeling of dread and awe. Like, wow, that guy must be pretty powerful. So too, you see the celestial spheres are subjugated. They don't just get to go buzz around however they want. They're set on a path, and they have to follow that path, and they submit themselves to that path. Wow! So the force to which they are submitting is a pretty powerful force. That's what we're saying. Now, although it is true that this manifestation of the king's might is coming by way of many levushim, of many garments. He says many garments, layers of garments. <laughs> Remember the Invisible Man from the old horror movies? You could, you could only see him if he's wearing clothes. He used to bandage up his head. You know what I'm talking about. Okay? So, you would know about Son of Svenguli. You would know all of the, you'd know all of the 50s horror movies. Hold on. So the point is, you can't see the Invisible Man. But when he's wearing clothes, you see his clothes moving around. Right? Okay. So you can't see this abstract notion of Hashem's authority, his power, his might. But you see the effect of it. So it's like seeing something by way of its external effects. And sometimes it's even the effect of an effect. That's why he calls it Levushim Rabin. He calls it... Well, <clears throat> yeah, okay. So this is an intermediate student mistake. Not a beginning student mistake and not an advanced student mistake. 
and that is when you hear the word levushim, you're so used to thinking of that word levushim in, oh, I know what levushim is, chapter 4, thought, speech, and action, the soul's garments. Very good. But um, one of the confusing things about chassidus is when we use a word in a very specific context to have a specific meaning, it doesn't preclude that word being used in other contexts to mean something completely different. Which is tough, because sometimes you'll see the word levushim, like, I know levushim, chapter 4, thought, speech, and action, the three garments of the soul. But here he's not talking about those levushim. I mean, it's similar, they're both called levushim, but here he's talking about when you see the celestial bodies surrendering to their king, they are a garment, so to speak, for the authority of the king. You don't see the king, but you see the effect that the king is having on the celestial bodies. Yeah. That's true, but they don't have free choice. So then what else would they do besides just surrender okay. to the God who created All right. Them? So you're saying because they don't have free choice, it's not as impressive? Okay, but it's not Aesop's fables here. It's not like we're using, you know, a fox to teach a story about human character traits, and we're not looking at the stars to teach a lesson about human character traits. It's not the point. The point is, it's supposed to inspire awe because you're like, wow, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff, and it's all subservient to Hashem. Wow. So when I'm trying to wrap my head around the greatness of Hashem, which I'll never be able to do, I could at least start by saying, even the stuff that Hashem's in control of, I can't wrap my head around. Let alone, I'm going to wrap my head around Hashem. Right. Wow, awe. Right. Okay? All right, fine. Rabbi. Yeah. Simple, like Rebecca, I don't know why, why are we not considered Hashem's Levushim also? <laughs> Are we not considered Hashem's Levushim also? Well, I'll tell you something. When we surrender and we do a mitzvah, we are Hashem's Levushim. Yeah, I guess to some extent that even when we don't... Yeah. I guess there are levels. There are levels to it. Meaning... There is a suit which is more, it fits you more, it's more conducive to your natural movement. And maybe there's a suit that's like, it uh, does, it's not so conducive. And then maybe that even is you, like a space suit. Like the boy in the bubble had to wear a space suit to go outside, remember that? Mm -hmm. Leia is the only one who gets any of my references, so she sits right up front. And at the end, he took it off and he died. Yeah. But he made a choice. But I wouldn't see, lived on I his wouldn't terms. see us as garments. I wouldn't see human beings as garments. I'd see us as vehicles of Hashem. Um, because we have garments, we block ourselves with garments. But yeah. We more well, vehicles than we are garments. Yeah, well. You're, you're bringing up something very good. I mean, sometimes we use the term Merkava, which is a vehicle. Sometimes we do use the term Levush, which is a garment. Our mitzvahs. Sometimes we describe our mitzvahs, not just as our soul's garments, but as the garments of the king. 
how the king is expressing himself. What? So what's everything else? Well, everything else is also a garment. It's all manifestation of, of Hashem. Yeah, we yeah it's all. When I look up to the stars with my eyes, yeah. when I feel, well, how's it go? When I, da, 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 when yeah. I cry, yeah. when I laugh, yeah. when I sing, I know that God is a part of everything. You don't know what I'm talking about? Not at all. Guys, it's all an expression of God. Stars, the wind, the, 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 the tide of the ocean, but they're just garments. And that's our point. Okay, watch this. Let's, let's continue here, okay? And although these are just garments, and sometimes they're garments on top of garments, Petticoats, you know, like like a lot of different layers. Talking about like major layers. Okay, hare, what? Okay. Okay. Hare ain't have the vehefresh klal beiras melech basav adam ben shehu arim oven shehu lavush lavush echad oven shehu lavush beluvush emanabim. There's no difference in the awe of the king whether the king is naked. It's an interesting thing, because I've thought about this before. Like, wouldn't that diminish one's awe of the king? But apparently not. No. Or whether the king is wearing many garments. The main thing is to habituate yourself, to get yourself in a practice of always thinking this way. That everything you see, everything that's heavens and the earth and everything in it, they are all just the external garments of the Holy One, blessed be He, the King. So here's the deal. What does it matter if the King is wearing nothing? Or if the King is wearing one layer of clothing? Or if the King is wearing Ten layers of clothing. It's still the king. So don't get caught up on the layers of clothing. The point is who is inside of that clothing. Vayadeza, and through this, through this consciousness, this awareness, Yizker Tomid Apnim Yusam Vechayusam, you'll always remember what's really inside of all of these garments. So when you look at the world, and you're impressed by the grandeur of creation or some aspect of the grandeur of creation, cool, no problem, Grand Canyon, whatever it is, whatever natural wonder it is that you're looking at, wow, amazing, Aurora Borealis, go to Iceland and go see the Aurora Borealis. I'm just giving you, if you want to do chapter 42 meditations, I'm giving you uh, trip suggestions. Okay. That's a good justification. Okay. Yeah. All right. Wow. Amazing. But these are the king's clothing. So just remember what's inside of the clothing, what's behind it. That's what we're really in awe of. To me, this sounds like it's alluding to like distinguishing believing in Hashem versus idol worship in a sense. Where like 
Okay. Well, yes, an idol worshiper would have a would get stuck. Yes, I don't think here the purpose of it is to negate idol worship because he's not speaking to that crowd. But yeah, an idol worshiper would get caught up on that because they would just stop. They would be like, "Oh, the aurora borealis is so amazing. Let's worship it." <laughs> no, 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 no. You're supposed to go further, go deeper, right? Okay. So. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that I can't see the inner core makes me even have more awe. Yes. Because I realize that if what I'm seeing like something great that's in nature, and I can't even take that in, how much right. more so the actual the yeah. Hashem, the yeah. inner core. Yes. Yeah. And he said a similar thing earlier in the chapter when he said about Hashem's omniscience, about an eye that sees and an ear that hears. And he says, now you're going to say Hashem has no bodily likeness. Yeah, no kidding. But that makes it more awe-inspiring, not less. Because he's not bound by those. By, he's not bound by the, by the particulars of the visual metaphor. The visual metaphor is the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. Right. And when you look up at the heavens and you see the stars and you know that that's just the surface. That's just the surface. That's right. Stars, that's right. That inspires And that's what he said, levushim chitzainim, means the outer garments. It's just the surface. Right. That's correct, yeah. Right. And that's why it's awe-inspiring. Exactly. Okay, yeah. So when I have that awe-inspiring moment, Yes. if I'm in a place of, like, constriction, pain, struggle, then it's like, you have all these garments, right? All yeah. These manifestations. What are you picking on me for? Yeah. What do you need? That's one thing. But I'd like to move out of that. Okay. If I were to move out of that, then I could just be like, so what do you need me for? So what am I here yeah. for? So what is this all about? Right? So why me? For the good, for the bad, for, for just plain old yeah. existence. So, I mean, he's not explicitly dealing with this, but you're asking, okay, so, I mean, it's a human question, so let me address it. Okay. You're basically saying, well, what if I'm going through pain, and I've got my own issues right now, I'm distracted with those issues, and now all of a sudden, let's say I'm doing some awe meditations, and they're working, and now I'm inspired. But hold on a second. What do I do? I have the awe, but at the same time, I have my, my pain. It's like I know God runs the world, so, like, why me? Why are you picking on me? Okay. Without getting into a whole deep conversation, why do bad things happen to good people? And I would refer you back to Chapter 26. You know, if you really need to rethink that Subject, I would say go back to the first half of chapter 26. We speak about the, the higher good, it's the hidden good, and okay, no problem. But within the context of this conversation, what I would say is that perhaps when our mind expands to appreciate increasingly vast notions of reality, um, that perhaps our present troubles become smaller. They don't vanish, but they exist within a larger context, which may make them slightly more manageable. I don't want to minimize anybody's problems, but a story that I often think about is I was one time when I was uh, a yeshiva student in 770, 
I was at the home of an older friend of mine. He was maybe 10 years older than me, he already was married with kids. And when his little kid started crying at the Shabbos meal. And my friend was like kind of laughing it off. And I'm like, why are you laughing it off? Like, your son is crying. He said, no, because it's really a silly reason why he's crying. He doesn't need anything. There's no, he's fine. I'm like, well, what? well he looks really upset. He's like, you know why he's crying? Because he just found out that the cholent is fleshik. And he wanted to make little cheese sandwiches tonight after Shabbos. And he's not going to be able to. So that's why he's crying. So I'm really not, like, not too concerned about it. Okay. So I don't know why, but that made a big impression on me. And whenever I tell this story, there's always people who get distracted by the perceived lack of compassion from the father. That's not the point of the story. I don't know if he should have been more compassionate or not, but that's not the point of the story. So forget about that. Just take it in. With we all want the cheese sandwiches. Now you think about the cheese sandwiches. Okay, so yeah. Okay, so so I saw this kid over ten years later. All right, let's not talk about cheese. Okay, let's not talk about cheese. I saw this kid over ten years. The story's not over. I didn't tell you the story for that purpose. I saw this kid over ten years later. He's married now, but I think this is before he got married. But he was in his 20s already. So maybe it was like 15 years later. Anyways, I, was, I, was, I spent the Shabbos with him. And I, and I said to him, can I tell you a story? And I told him that story. Mm-hmm. And I said, do you remember that? He said, I don't remember it, but I believe it. I believe it. I told him, I'm not trying to embarrass you by telling you about silly things that made you cry when you were little. I'm telling you the story for a reason. I told him, I don't really know you, I haven't seen you, I haven't spoken to you in many years, so I don't know what's going on in your life, but I know the nature of life. And I just want you to know, whatever you have going on in your life right now, whatever it is that's keeping you up at night, that's troubling you, you should know this. Just like what made you cry when you were eight years old doesn't make you cry today when you're 23, Whatever that's making you cry when you're 23, there will come a day when that won't make you cry either. But it's a lot of work to get there. There's a lot of sometimes, sometimes it's work. Sometimes it's just time. And it might not even be in this world. Or it might not be until Mashiach comes. Certain things we will not be able to wrap our minds around. We know that. The suffering of the innocent... We don't want to wrap our minds around. But when Mashiach comes, we have the whole picture, then somehow it'll all kind of click and make sense. Okay? But the point is, when you get a glimpse of a bigger picture, even if from that mind-expanded state, you don't see how your problems make sense, at least it hints to the idea that there are greater vistas and there is the potential for whatever it is that you're grappling with to have a context. Maybe you can't see widely and broadly enough to have that context, but it reminds us that there is a context. Well, that doesn't go any further than that. It doesn't go to the subjugation and the subservience is, in, is enhanced by you realizing how everything in this world is under Hashem's dominion. And that helps us all to realize that my problems are Hashem's problems 
and he will take care of it because he can. Yes, that's that's another aspect of it. But I subjugate myself yeah. to Shem, and I put myself in his control. Yes, yes, that's another aspect of it, that certainly Hashem is in control, and that whatever I'm going through that's difficult isn't a lapse in Hashem's control. Exactly. It's somehow all part of it. But again, like I was saying previously, we don't have the bigger concept. Yeah, what do you want to say? Jump in, jump in. Yeah. Yeah. Will we ultimately understand as in suffering, as in will we understand as why the Holocaust? Why the Holocaust? Or, or, or whatever. Always or, 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 why the Holocaust? Will we all be able to say, it is, it is close will we to us? Really understand everything? Why we have to go through each challenge and difficulty? So if you are a Holocaust survivor, you will understand why the Holocaust maybe even before Mashiach comes. If you are not a Holocaust survivor, no, you will never understand the Holocaust. If you're a child of the Holocaust, if you're a child of Holocaust survivors, you will understand why there's such a thing called children of Holocaust survivors. You will understand your part, why that was your story. We will. At the end of days, we'll have some clarity. Everything will be put in Everyone will see what they need to see. Right. Okay. Okay, so even if we don't take this to a pain place, yeah. what if we just take it to, okay, so what do you want from me? Even not from pain. Okay, so we know this already because we said earlier that the bottom line of all these meditations is mitzvah observance. But like, I'm yeah, sorry. I just yeah, well, that's what it is. What it comes down to is, what are you going to do with your awe? You're going to translate it into living a way that respects Hashem's wishes. Go away from evil and do good. Why? Because he's important enough that whatever it is he's expressed that he wants, he should get. And this is what I'm here for. Which is peeling back the layers of the onion. Yes. And every time you study, you learn something new. And then that helps you to deal better with what we're given. Because Hashem gave us a manual. Right, let's try to finish the chapter. What? Well, that's why we're meditating. That's why we're meditating. We're meditating to internalize it. Okay. Let's finish off the chapter here. Okay. So, uh... We said you have to habituate yourself to understanding that the visual cues are just external manifestations of a deeper truth and that we need to try to be in tune with that deeper truth to the, to the extent that we're capable. He says, this is also the term emuna. Remember, he said, habituate yourself. It takes training. It's not like you make a decision one time. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm always going to remember that the king is in the clothes. No, it takes training that when you see the clothes, remember, because it may be he's wearing three, four, five, six, seven layers of clothing. So you've got to always remember the king's inside the clothes. You've got to habituate yourself. He says, this is the term emuna. Shulashan regila samuna. I know we translate it as faith. He says, Amuna actually means habituation. Like an Uman, Hamaymen Yodav. See the same shaders, the etymological root, the Aleph, Mem, Nun. 
like a craftsman who perfects his craft. It becomes a skill, and you hone your skill or your craft. To see the skill or the craft is to be able to see that the king is in the clothes. We should also constantly remember the term that our sages use, acceptance of the yoke of the heavenly kingdom, which is similar to the idea of the commandment to appoint for yourself a king. One of the 613 commandments is to get a king, a Jewish king. Like it's explained elsewhere. Because Hashem fills all the worlds, higher and lower, and yet He focuses His kingship upon us, and we, for our part, receive that kingship. It's a two-way street. It's a dynamic relationship. And this is what the meaning of the bowing is in the Amida, in the standing prayer. After you accept the kingship of Hashem in Shema. Shema is the exception, is, is the accepting of Hashem's kingship. And then after you say Shema, then you do the Amida, the Shemaynasra, and then you bow, and that represents the subservience. When you bow, then you are actually, physically indeed, receiving the kingship. In a, in a physical way. Like it's explained elsewhere. So the point is that when you feel the awe, the awe should move you. Move you to what? To surrender, to acceptance, to receiving Hashem's authority. That's the end of chapter 42.